Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to our Policy Pulse on keeping children safe at school. Please welcome our speakers, Max Eden, Research Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jonathan Butcher, Heritage's Will Skillman Fellow in Education. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jonathan Butcher, and I am the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Every parent wants their child to be safe at school. While the days of walking to school with your child or even standing on the corner with them in the morning as they get on the bus may be gone for most people, every family wants their child's school day to be one in which they are challenged by their teachers, supported by their friends, and prepared with the skills and knowledge they need to be successful in school and in life. But since Columbine, and amplified by the more recent events in Parkland and Santa Fe, Texas, the terrifying specter of violence at schools has hovered over families and students around the country. State and federal policymakers have a role to play here, making sure that every child is safe on school grounds. And this is very relevant today because federal officials are considering bringing back policies that micromanage school safety from inside the Washington Beltway. And these policies have proved to create any number of problems for local schools. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Max Eden, research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute who has studied this issue and even written a book on the topic with a parent who had the indescribable experience of losing a child because of violence at school. So Max, welcome. And let's start with what makes our discussion timely right now. The Biden administration signaled recently in a federal register announcement that they are considering pressuring schools again to use disparate impact policies to manipulate student discipline and school safety provisions. So let's start there. Help us understand, I mean, let's talk about what is disparate impact? What does it have to do with school safety and, stu uh, and student discipline? Yeah, no, I think, uh... Your question is very well taken. There are kind of two two parts to it. What is disparate impact and what will its effect be in how school discipline policy gets manipulated, micromanaged from the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights? Now, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights exists as a kind of final backstop against discrimination, right? There might be schools where a student is subjected to unfair treatment and cannot have recourse at the school maybe they cannot get recourse through the state so the federal government is there as a final backstop a guarantor of last resort for a situation where a student's rights are being clearly violated now historically when it comes to school discipline the office of civil rights had a charge to investigate and remedy instances of disparate treatment right so if per se a black student and a white student both swore at a teacher and the white student got a lunch detention and the black student got a two-week suspension and it was both of their first assaults both of their first infractions uh the office of civil rights has the right and exercised the right to go in and say that was wrong you must remedy the situation and i 
that's not a terribly controversial thing. I think that strikes most people as just. But under the Obama administration, they changed their standard of enforcement from disparate treatment to disparate impact. So the standard rather became, uh, to kind of put it down into the, <laughs> the, the shortest basic way to describe it is if per se, two black students and one white student uh, all swore at a teacher and were all disciplined equally for swearing at that teacher, it may or may not be a civil rights violation that the Department of Education can come in to investigate, depending on the racial background of the school district. <laughs> uh, which And this isn't totally hypothetical, right? Because no, you, no. as you've written before, I mean, this happened. Yes, no, this and this this happened and uh, and the other part. So first there is the the investigative lens, right? And and a, a case could be made for using disparate impact as an investigative tool. Uh, I don't agree with that case, but you could make a case that, hey, if we see these substantial differences in disciplinary rates between races, maybe that's a sign that there's something going on. Uh, that's not an implausible case. It's not an implausible trigger for a civil rights apparatus to kick in. The problem is that under Catherine Lamon, who was the former assistant secretary in the Office of Civil Rights and has been nominated to lead it again, the investigations that occurred under this kind of banner of disparate impact were not really investigations. The instructions that were given to investigators behind the scenes were quite clear that these investigations could only end when the school district agreed to adopt the leniency policies that the Obama administration uh, preferred. And so what you basically had was a situation where school districts, if there was any complaint of any sort, either an individual complaint lodged by the student or the ACLU writing a letter and saying, hey, look, these rates are different here. It wasn't really an invitation to a good faith investigation that tried to ascertain, you know, is there system-wide disparate treatment of students? Are black kids being treated differently in individual cases? And is that part of what's adding up? It became, oh, if you have different rates, we as the Department of Education will harass you with these interminable, intrusive, deeply uh, disagreeable investigations until you agree to adopt our preferred policies. So you were, you wrote about her, I mean, just today. So I want to talk about that article that, that you did on her. But before, uh, before we get to that, disparate impact has, it has some roots, right? I mean, this is a legal idea that dates back, I mean, really to the civil rights movement even before, right? And you've got this concept now that is sort of resurfacing and there have been, I mean, there's there there are court rulings uh, even from the late '90s um, that uh, that I've seen and and uh, my colleague and uh, colleagues and I at Heritage have have discussed where they you know these rulings say that this is essentially disparate impact is pushing for a ratio right it's saying that look the result here is that behavior kind of takes a backseat if at all to the idea of just sort of keeping track by skin color who gets a particular sanction. Yeah, no, I mean, disparate impact is one of those notions that started with a, a, a plausible, reasonable, fairly rational premise and has become practically expanded into uh, just the presumption that anything that presents with a differential outcome is prima facie 
illegal unless determined otherwise, right? So then famously, one of the first cases where this disparate impact theory was, was propounded and kind of upheld in the courts had to do with uh, an examination for firefighters, which had a racially disparate rate of passage between white and black firefighters. And the courts determined, hey, there's really that much, not that much a relationship between performance on this test and, and doing your job. So this seems like a shadow way to discriminate by race without actually officially discriminating by race. And that is, I think there's a, a lot of reason to that, uh, but the courts and certainly policymakers have not held to this limiting principle of, you know, does it have a rational basis to uh, what we're trying to either observe or control for or adjust to? And so what you have is this assumption that Catherine Lamon has written uh, in her capacity as the, as the head of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, which is uh, that there is no rational basis, no reasonable, prudent, reality-rooted basis for differences in disciplinary record by race. And there are substantial differences, right? And the differences are ups very upsetting to look at. Black students get suspended at something along the order of 3.5 times as frequently as white students. And you can see how looking at that, you would get alarmed. Looking at that, you would get uh, offended, indignant, want to change something, feel like there's something wrong with the system that you're getting those results. Um, Unfortunately, and, and Lamont has said that there is no actual difference in behavior that drives that. And if that were true, then that would be astonishing. And then it would be quite a rational basis for normal disciplinary policies to be chucked out the window in favor of whatever, uh, you know, more restorative, quote unquote, more lenient policies should replace them. But unfortunately, that's not that's not the case. I mean, we have seen in study after study, the more that studies try to take into account like what of this disparity is uh, plausibly attributable to differences in behavior, the more they find that the amount of that disparity that could be attributed to discrimination shrinks and shrinks and shrinks in some cases to the point of vanishing. And just to give kind of the most basic control for a factor, students who are from single parent households in general, regardless of race, are about three times as likely to, or about twice as likely to get suspended as students from two-parent households. Students from African-American households are about three times as likely to come from a single-parent household. That doesn't, of course, explain the totality of the disparity, but it explains quite a bit of it. Uh, but if you refuse to acknowledge that there might be that factor, and if you refuse to admit that there's a reason why these teachers might be acting you know, in individual ways prudently in relation to what they see in front of them, then you set the stage for a rabid overcorrection based on the presumption that all the statistical disparities that you see aren't rooted in teachers responding prudently, rationally, responsibly to what's in front of them, but rather that they are driven by racial bias and therefore they should not be trusted and they should be second-guessed, they should not be permitted to uh, exercise authority in the classroom under that theory, which uh, is disparate impact run amok. I mean, at, at the most extreme version of it, a, a kind of a, a friend of ours, Gail Harriet, who was also in the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights, has noted uh, in a very compelling law review article that that disparate impact uh, theory without a limiting principle makes 
everything presumptively illegal unless it is sanctioned by a civil rights investigating authority. And so what well, you basically- And she also, I mean, she noted in her study as well that once you start to take into account behaviors, that makes the racial disparities almost vanish. I mean, almost disappear. And I think yeah. there was there was another study that had that had brought that up too. Because I mean, you've written about that. Your former colleague at the Manhattan Institute, Heather McDonald, has brought that up too. And because because the U.S. Department of Edu Education puts out that annual report, right, on on safety in schools. And when you, you know, just look at the numbers, right, at, that self-reported data of fights in school by race, uh, the the presence of drugs in school. Um, uh, fights on and off of campus and the gang activity, right? You you start to see that we have because because there's not it's not as though um, students from minority ethnicities are evenly distributed around the country, right? I mean we have these concentrations, right, in largely in urban areas, and so what that means is that when you concentrate, you know, those students together, you're uh, especially with the evidence that you were just talking about, everything from generational poverty to neighborhoods that are dangerous to single parent homes, and you put them all in the same, you know, public school system, of course you're going to have, you know, the, you know, some of the numbers that we see, but that's, that's not because there is potential, you know, that's not because there's evidence uh, that's irrefutable that there's racism going on. It just means that this system of school assignment has one of the negative effects, right? Of, of causing children of certain ethnicities to be disciplined more when they're all in this in in these areas together yeah no i mean there are and there are just, there are profound inequities in american society across all sorts of uh, all sorts of background factors and you know when it comes to uh, academic achievement we have not really there's no real argument that kids who are from a, a poor single parent household who don't get read to, who grew up in more more of a chaotic home environment and more chaotic neighborhoods, who grew up in regions of concentrated poverty. Uh, nobody really bristles at the notion that they might be set back a little bit in terms of academics. <laughs> um, however, when it comes to school discipline and behavior, this disparate impact theory, which is downstream of kind of critical race theory and the presumption that all disparities are a product of institutional racism. Uh, this, we policymakers in the Department of Education, especially in Democratic Department of, Departments of Education, don't allow themselves to acknowledge that that poverty and social circumstances will also affect behavior. And if you don't, then what you see in front of you is is staggering and requires a massive top-down correction. Now, unfortunately, given that there are behavior-based uh, predicates for the disparities that we see. There are students who come from very hard backgrounds, who bring a lot of those hard backgrounds to the school. If you tell the teachers that we need you to get your rates down full stop, because frequently in practice, this top-down pressure to equalize rates gets internalized purely as a pressure to lower rates. Very rarely do the rates equalize. More often, they just decrease across the board and they decrease the simplest way that they can by teachers not being allowed to send students to the office, um, teachers not being backed up by the principal, by the assistant principal when a student misbehaves, which then leads to classroom situations where, you know, frankly, there are, there are always kids who want to push the envelope. There are always kids who want to test out 
where that line is. And once they realize that that line is further, that they can go farther, they will. And to the degree to which they internalize the broader message that's being sent with this, which is effectively that your behavior is your teacher's and your school's thought, that sets up a whole nother kind of dynamic for resentment, disrespect, and an inability for teachers to just maintain the basic elements of order and authority in their classrooms. Well, and I think that leads very nicely to uh, your book with Andrew Pollack. So let me, before we get to that, I want to back up for a second because there's this accusation out there that anytime conservatives start to talk about cultural issues these days, we bring up critical race theory and just sort of capture everything with it and say, well, it's all this nasty thing called critical race theory. But as you and I have talked about, there are in fact uh, there is scholarly research, academic research, that uses the words critical race theory and links it to disparate impact and talks about school discipline procedures. So we're, uh, you know, we, it's important for folks to realize that we're not just making this up. I mean, this was in academia well into the 2000s where um, people were, were linking what was going on with the discussion about how students are treated in school, what it means for this so-called school to prison pipeline and how it's related to critical thinking, which is this, you know, this perspective that there is systemic oppression somewhere it's created by American law, American government, and critical race theory is a part of this critical perspective, right? That there is this, this oppression out there that we have to rebel against. So, so it, it, respond to that real quick. And then I want to talk to about, about your book next, but that this connection here with critical race theory is real. Yeah, no, I mean, there there are law review articles, there are academic articles that explore kind of, as you said, the school to prison pipeline idea, restorative justice questions around, you know, the relationships between schools and incarceration, school to prison pipeline. Uh, and in those articles, the they will say that this is kind of informed by directly or perfectly of a piece with critical race theory. And this kind of gets to a broader point that I think can't be made enough. So I'll take one slight step to the <laughs> to the side to get back to it, which is that you know critical race theory doesn't define itself simply as a legal theory. It defines itself as a movement of scholars and activists who seek to understand and transform society. And in the kind of self-description of critical race theory. Uh, by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanik in Critical Race Theory and Introduction, they make it very clear that critical race theory has had a substantial impact on all sorts of ed education policy and pedagogy questions, including school discipline. Um, so, you know, it is not as though your marquee banner critical race theorists have written all of this stuff directly, but they have created an intellectual milieu, a set of assumptions that has informed the the thinkers and the actors and the doers who have embraced this and pushed this and it is all part of one kind of conceptually and intellectually coherent whole and you can identify from from one of the fundamental premises uh more or less directly stated by critical race theorists that all disparities in American society are a product of institutionalized, systemic, structural, what have you, racism, you see immediately how that gets you to the accusation that any disparity in disciplinary outcomes by race must be an artifact of 
oppression and of institutional oppression. It hollows out uh, kind of traditional notions of the role that families play, the role that communities play, individuals' culpability and responsibility for their own actions in favor of a systemic indictment that requires a very heavy-handed uh, systemic response. And this is kind of one part of many aspects of pedagogy and practice that are informed by critical race theory. And, you know, I mean, one can go back through my writings and I've written about this topic for years and I have not written, oh, this is CRT uh, for school discipline, but others have written that and it is, it is true. Well, and those that believe that have written that. I mean, you can go to those that have advocated for this very thing. I, I think it's it's sort of the flip here, right? I mean, I think academics have uh, who are in favor of critical thinking have said for years they want to affect culture. I mean, you go back to Max Horkheimer, the, one of the original critical theorists, he said he wanted Marxism and his sort of Freudian postmodernism to change culture. That's that's what they were after. And so now that can you know conservatives have sort of as we look at this at this cultural moment and say, wow, all of these things have a, a very clear connection with the ideas driving behind them. And and you know I think there's this pushback from uh, from those on the other side who are saying, oh you know conservatives are saying this is all the same thing. Well that's because they said it first, right? I mean, that's because that's that's what the critical theorists wanted. All right, so um, we'll move on for that for a second. To... One more one more thing, just to, to put, put a concrete yeah, please. For, for the folks, because there was this um, this one passage uh, in a New York Times piece on the impact of these restorative justice discipline leniency policies in, um, I think, the Minneapolis school district, where they told the story of a teacher who, when the shift took place, the shift to, quote unquote, restorative justice took place, uh, he couldn't send the kids home, and it described the way in which, uh, you know, cuss words led, led to shoving, shoving led to fights, but he could only respond by giving students quality time instead of uh, instead of detentions, and eventually he resorted to sweeping everything on, under the rug, and the close to a, close to a quote from the, the New York Times reporter, you know, the discipline system that had worked for him for 30 years a warning and then a consequence was no longer recognized as valid, he resigned being labeled a racist, right? And so that doesn't happen by accident. That doesn't happen without a strong intellectual uh, kind of bulwark behind it. You do not get a cultural shift to view uh, a warning and then a consequence as a manifestation of racism without a substantial degree of uh, intellectual spade work of whatever quality. And you can see it somewhat directly in organizations like the Abolitionist Teachers Network, where they will say that, you know, punitive discipline is inherently anti-black, <laughs> whereas restorative discipline is, uh, helps, you know, students of color flourish to be more of their true selves. And that's a bold claim. I mean, the, the notion and it goes that... Straight to that. Like, they're not yeah. thinking, gosh, there could be four or five things going on here. Like, no, we're going to go straight to this conclusion. Yeah, straight and straight to the conclusion that that punishment, which is, I mean, the the least racialized, the most kind of common response to bad behavior present in every single society uh, throughout the course of history, is somehow a racialized, westernized, etc. thing that is inherently anti-blackness, uh, anti-student of color. Um, that you can't get straight there without a worldview reorientation that is exactly downstream and of a piece with uh, an ideology that 
looks at the rule of law as inherently a socially constructed farce intended to oppress certain minority groups for the purpose of maintaining the power of majority groups. Yeah, well, it's well said. So we have about uh, maybe five minutes left. Let's um, we're going to bring this home by let's um, we're going to make this very practical. So tell us about tell us about your book. I'm, I want to introduce it real quick, and then you know you. Um, uh, you, I mean, wrote this with somebody who lived it, right? You had this policy that actually, before even the Obama administration was pushing it, the Broward County in Florida was pushing it. I think they got it from somebody in Georgia, right? Or at least that's the um, uh, what the what the rumor is. And then, you know, you have this um, this thing that's now sweeping the nation. You've got the Promise Program. You've got Parkland. All of it is sort of of a piece now. Um, so give us, you know, give us a few minutes on on what it was like to see disparate impact become policy, affect a school, and then change somebody's life. Yeah, no, so as you as you said, the, the Broward County School District was, to the best of my ability to research, the only major school district that voluntarily moved forward with this disparate impact restorative justice leniency model without being coerced behind the scenes by the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. They very consciously pointed to what Broward did and said that this is kind of the model and this is what our dear colleague letter, which as we discussed earlier, was a policy enforcement mechanism, was based on. And so what happened in the school district in general, the teachers I spoke to, the students I spoke to, the administrators I spoke to, um, every principal kind of got the memo that you were going to be judged by the central office by how low you can get your discipline rates. Uh, you're successful if you lower detentions, you lower suspensions, you lower expulsions, you lower especially arrests. The Broward County School District went to extreme lengths, uh, especially on the arrest front, right? They, this promise program gave students three free misdemeanors every single year. Uh, if you brought a gun to school and you gave it and over- misdemeanors, to, so not just, not just acting out, not just no, acting no, out, like it, 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 three free misdemeanors a year before you were allowed to be referred to the school resource officer. Um, school administrators were explicitly instructed to not cooperate with police if they were trying to look for a student who had committed a crime off campus. Um, and so their arrest rates went down dramatically. Their suspension and expulsion rates also went down substantially. And they reaped, uh, they reaped great benefit in the press because, hey, look, we've gotten our rates down. This is a more just way. Uh, and in every school district that I've that I had studied prior to this happening, I've my consistent finding was that uh, this is this is affected by simply not enforcing rules, which leads to more disorder and more dangerous students falling through the cracks. And so in the wake of the Parkland shooting, students came forward to the media in the first few days that got overshadowed very quickly by another group of students who primarily wanted to, to blame kind of the gun and push for gun control and their yeah, gun rights and yeah. Uh, but a whole bunch of students came forward and said, hey, we we knew th that he would do this. He threatened to kill us, he threatened to rape us, he brought bolts to school, he brought knives to school, he threatened to shoot up the school. We all knew it was him as it was happening. Nobody even needed to see him or say him. We all knew and we saw something and we said something and we didn't feel like it was handled. And so I traveled down to Parkland. I met one of the fathers who lost a daughter, Andrew Pollock, whose daughter Meadow was murdered on the third floor that day. and why I was trying to figure out what what happened like are all these stories true why were all these flags missed and the thesis of the book which was it was you know 
painful for him and frankly flabbergasting for me to realize was that this is a student who could not possibly have thrown up more red flags and more signals as to who he was and what he wanted to do. Uh, and at every time he threw up a major signal, the administrator had one of two choices. They could do the responsible thing that might put the student on a path, not necessarily to salvation, but a path to being dealt with in a way that could have averted it, or they could sweep it under the rug. And every time they made the wrong decision, the obviously morally wrong decision, the irresponsible decision, but the decision that you probably would make too, I probably would make too, if we were a mid-level bureaucrat operating in an organization that had the goal of decreasing statistical records of problematic behavior. And so, you know, I don't want to go too far with this, and I've, I've tried to not in, in the book and in my writing of this is necessarily a recipe for more school shootings. There, there are a lot of differences. Hopefully it never will be again, but it absolutely is a recipe for having dangerous students of whatever stripe fall through the cracks, which will lead to uh, perhaps tragedies on that scale, God willing not, certainly tragedies far lesser than that, but the kind of tragedies that happen 10,000 days, 10,000 times a day in school districts uh, that will go unrecorded in a system that prides itself and takes credit for fixing the disparities, fixing institutional and systemic bias and racism by simply preventing teachers from exercising their prudent judgment and doing what they think is right for the student who is offending and for the rest of their class. And it was preventable and there was a policy in place that is now coming, potentially coming back through the White House that will affect schools around the country. So we are, you know, we're staring down something here where we have an experience, we have evidence, we have stories from parents, you know, that we, parents should use, that conservatives should use, that everyone should use to talk about what, uh, what is valid. So, hey, Max, thank you so much. Uh, enjoyed this, was so glad that you were uh, joining us. And uh, uh, we're grateful for everyone who tuned in online and uh, those who, who may be watching later. So thank you for, uh, for being with us today, and uh, please join us at the next uh, Heritage Policy Pulse.